Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. When Europe's Great War engulfed the Ottoman Empire, Arab nationalists rose in revolt against their Turkish rulers and allied with the British on the promise of an independent Arab state. In October 1918, the Arabs' military leader, Prince Faisal, victoriously entered Damascus and proclaimed a constitutional government in an independent Greater Syria. In How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, the Syrian Arab Congress of 1920, and the destruction of its historic liberal Islamic alliance, published by Atlantic Monthly Press in 2020, Elizabeth Thompson describes the extraordinary brief moment of unity and hope and of its destruction. Elizabeth Thomas, uh, Thompson is the Mohammed S. Farzi Chair of Islamic mm-hmm. Peace at American University's School of International Service. I'm so glad her book has brought her to our program today. Thank Welcome. you for having me. Appreciate it. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to write this book? Oh, it was a very long and winding road toward this book, <laughs> I would say. Um, <laughs> Uh, one, I'll give you two genealogies, so to speak. One certainly came after 9 11, teaching, uh, doing teach ins, uh, explaining that the, the, what the bombings were, who those people were in the context of the societies they came from, and how we might respond. Um, I came to realize how little the general public knows. Uh, about not only about the Middle East, but what the United States has done in the Middle East over the last century. And I felt that uh, I should write a a sort of um, general book on the topic rather than a university press specialized book. So that was there. Uh, And particularly what struck me uh, about the discourses after 9-11 was this, that so often people would say, oh, they attacked us because they hate our values and everything we stand for. And so when I happened upon sources that suggested, in fact, you know, liberal constitutionalism has a very long history in the Middle East um, and that Islam was not the obstacle to democracy that it had been made out to be, I became intrigued. So that was one sort of track. Um the other was that, um, uh, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring. Ten years ago, Syrians themselves began protesting, seeking dignity, rule of law against uh, a police state. Um, and uh, so much of what American policymakers have done in, in, since then and the way the public understands Syria has continued to be, I'd say, sort of um, distorted by what 
what we might call a sort of a bias um, about a way of thinking about Islam and democracy that, in fact, we've inherited since the 19th century and the colonial era. And it's a little uncomfortable for Americans to think we're heirs to a colonial way of thinking. <laughs> but it's probably important to us in that we've spent a lot of money and shed a lot of blood since then in an effort to, what, vanquish those who hate us? You've got the same problem. Though, you know, in an effort to, you know, to defeat those who hate, hate us and, and to sow seeds of democracy, but without reexamining these preconceived notions we've inherited, I think we've adopted wrongheaded policies and that uh, a benefit to writing and reading this book would be to make us ask different questions and maybe even to see that there are people out there in the Middle East who share our values and um, that there might be a simpler solution, so to speak, to the, the problem, um, for doing air quotes here, right? <laughs> uh, um, you know, Islamic violence. Right. Well, I definitely think that your your uh, book is really a, a phenomenal corrective to a lot of the misconceptions about the the role of democracy and the desire for democracy in the Middle East, uh, both today and certainly, you know, going back um, uh, a little bit in time. And we're gonna we're gonna get into all of this uh, to set the stage a bit. Um, when you use the the the, the term uh, the word uh, Syria or Syrian in in the context of your book, what lands um, are included in that term? Oh, thank you for that question. It's an important definition, and uh, to start out with. I'm speaking of a region that Arabic speakers at the turn of the 20th century would have called Bilad Asham or country of Sham or country of Syria. Um, and it didn't have precise boundaries, but it encompassed large sections of large sections of what would um, today you know understand and recognize as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Israel. Um, that uh, families were interrelated amongst the cities in that region, even a little bit of um, east, you know, southeastern Turkey were, um, was uh, understood to be part of that uh, region. They spoke a similar dialect uh, of Arabic. Families had relations with one another. A lot of business was conducted amongst all those cities historically. So, um, and the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled the region since 1516, um, uh, use that term as well. Um, technically, um, at different points of time, the, uh, the territory was split up in different ways into states, local states or, or uh, districts. Uh, but uh, in sort of common social and cultural understanding, there was an interconnectedness amongst the peoples there, as opposed to, say, neighboring Iraq or Mesopotamia, and to the south, the Arabian Peninsula, and to the southwest, Egypt. Okay, so they had a sort of distinct sense of um, uh, uh, of a region unto itself, and it was from that area that uh, delegates convened after the end of World War One at Damascus to set up a government that would cover that region. 
Right, right. And we're going to get to the to, to those delegates uh, briefly, but certainly we should, um, our listeners should bear in mind when we refer to Syria or the, the, the Syrian peoples in this context, we're speaking about a much larger territory and many, many more people than we would commonly think of today in terms of what, what it means to be, to speak about Syria. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, at the start of World War One, what was the status of this uh, territory known as Syria? What was its political status? It was part of the Ottoman Empire, had been so for four centuries by that point. Uh, it was prospering on the coast, the uh, you know the coastal cities of Jaffa and Haifa and uh, Beirut. Uh, Iskandarun or um, uh, Alexandretta to the north uh, were thriving ports. The um, the peoples of the region uh, had seen as well uh, the growth of a middle class, an educated middle class. The Ottoman Empire had uh, built a system of state schools, but uh, more importantly, perhaps, especially along the coast, were the missionary schools. Um, that uh, uh, educated uh, Syrians, both Muslim, Christian, and Jewish, if you will. And these are Christian missionary schools? Mostly, mostly, yes. There were, um, in response to the Christian schools, there were Muslim schools, a system of Muslim schools set up, uh, particularly in the region of Lebanon, um, called the Maqasid, and they were to provide an alternative because many Muslims did in fact send their kids to those Christian schools because they were better schools than um, some of the government ones. Although there, the, 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 there were government schools that were highly regarded. I don't want to um, downplay those. But the Ottoman Empire itself um, had had to divert much of its available wealth to fighting wars. Um, uh, right on, uh, by 1914, they had been through the Balkan Wars and lost much of their territory in Europe. And many people from greater Syria uh, had fought in those wars as well. Uh, and so there wasn't a lot of money for social uh, supports and so on. Uh, the people of greater Syria had sent delegates to the parliament in Istanbul, elected them, uh, and had agitated by and large for greater uh, local rule. Uh, I was very interested to learn that some of them uh, studied the American system of government and ha- were proposing that the Ottoman Empire develop a kind of federal system where uh, there would be local state governments that could keep control of their tax revenues. Um, and perhaps in the case of Arabic speaking regions, They could conduct public business in Arabic, not Turkish, and so on. And so um, they had just sort of confronted the government in Istanbul with a set of uh, proposals for reform. And that was under negotiation as the region began heading toward um, yet another war in the summer of 1914. Right. And how does Al-Fatat, the, the Young Arab Society, how does that fit into what was going on around this period? Mm, good question. So Al-Fatat um, oh, was started by uh, a sort of members of that new professional middle class, uh, particularly teachers, lawyers, uh, those who had 
even gone to school in Istanbul for their higher education. Some had gone to school in Paris uh, for legal training. And they were at the forefront of this idea of, of a federal government or um, what they called in Arabic was a, a decentralized government was their um, uh, was their their lingo in that. But they um, wed that with the idea of a renaissance in Arab culture and literature and so on um, in that period. What happened, however, is while in, as of 1914 and even into 1915, they remained loyal to the Ottoman Empire and simply sought reforms within it, uh, the Ottomans sent a uh, pretty hard-lying military governor to Greater Syria uh, in 1915, who um, imposed military rule and actually arrested and hanged a good number of very prominent, young, promising politicians and intellectuals uh, in an effort to stamp out what he saw was a a sort of seditious movement during wartime um, incorrectly, I mean, they were not separatist at that point, but the, the Turks were extremely paranoid by early 1915. Some of your listeners may uh, be aware of the Battle of Gallipoli that was going on uh, at that time. And um, it wasn't clear that the Ottomans would prevail. Uh, if you saw the movie with Mel Gibson, you know <laughs> that the it doesn't end up very. It, it doesn't end up very well for the British. <laughs> yes, no, it did not. But uh, it, you know, for the first half of 1915, the Ottomans feared that uh, they would lose Istanbul itself. So um, they were suspicious of everybody and everything in that empire at that point. Um, it is a big topic to leave in passing, but. Uh, there are many companion books that I hope will find a place on a shelf next to my book about the Armenian genocide that occurred at that time, too. Um, and um, the sort of prevailing consensus amongst historians, particularly there was a consortium of Armenian and Turkish historians who came out with a, a volume a couple of years ago, was that it was the paranoia and the fear of Gallipoli that pushed the Ottomans over the brink from repression of the Armenians to extermination of the Armenians in the spring of 1915. So it was a very bad time. That is all to say, to get back to your original question about Fatat, the the Young Arab Society, uh, in the wake of that repression, they changed their goals to fight for independence. And those who could moved south to join uh, and help form a general Arab revolt that started down in the Arabian Peninsula. And those of your listeners who have seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia will know about that Arab revolt. Absolutely. So speaking of that revolt, who was Faisal and how? Uh, what role did he play in the Allies' effort against the Ottoman Empire? Ah, great question. So Faisal actually was the son, one of um, four sons of the governor or Sharif of Mecca, a man named Sharif Hussein. Uh, he had actually grown up in Istanbul, where his father was an Ottoman official. Um, but right before World War I, his father was posted back down to Mecca 
where they had family ties and where, you know, uh, Faisal had spent summers. He knew very well the ways of the Bedouin and understood ways of fighting uh, in the desert, um, ways of fighting that T.E. Lawrence in the movie would come to learn, right? Um, so when, after, after the executions of a couple dozen leading Arabs up in Damascus and Beirut, they launched the revolt in June of 1916. And Faisal was in charge of the Northern Army that, was, that headed north from Arabia into Syria. Their goal was to occupy Damascus. Right. So um, he was very young in this period, barely 30 years old during the war. And uh, he, uh, it was in his army that T.E. Lawrence um, joined. And uh, they moved together along the line of a, uh, there was an old railroad called the Hijaz Railway. Um, and they followed that railway north. And to what extent did, did Faisal and his, uh, the rebellion that he led uh, with the support of, of T.E. Lawrence, to what extent did they make a real military uh, impact uh, on the side of the Allies? Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. That's a, that became quite a dispute, as you might imagine, in 1918, as the war came to a close, uh, because um, in the minds of the Arabs, they were fighting. Uh, they had begun their fight before the British showed up on the scene, which is true. Um, they had understood, however, um, that Sharif Hussein had made an agreement with the British in 1915 that um, the British would recognize an independent state. The British were very happy to have anybody cause more trouble for the Ottoman Turks who were their enemy, right? Um, and so they had, uh, through a series of letters, agreed that there would be an Arab state ranging from Arabia up into greater Syria. So, uh, so this is the, the, the uh, McMahon-Hussein correspondence? That's exactly right, yes. Um, they did not know that the British and French were also holding secret deals uh, sealed in 1916 with the Russians as well called Sykes-Picot Accord, which would split up that same territory amongst themselves. So the British were uh, playing a two-sided game there. (laughs) Or or really a three-sided game because they also had the Balfour Declaration. Exactly. That comes a little bit later, but yes, at the end of 1917 comes the Balfour Declaration promising a section of greater Syria on the Palestine coast to, as a, um, uh, a Jewish homeland, or actually no boundary whatsoever, which all of these agreements, being fuzzy on their geography, caused much dispute for years after the war. Let's just so, leave it there. Right. So at least it, it, uh, it, it's it's correct to say that some parts of of the territory of Greater Syria were promised by the French, the British, to three different groups of people. Yes, but. But by and large, we can, if we take today's map and we look at sort of uh, the region of today's Syria, um, the, the Lebanese coast, and the area going down into Jordan and even the West Bank, absolutely. I don't think the British ever contested that they had promised that. The, the, the real disputes came when the French wanted to claim the Lebanese coast, and then the uh, British made the promise 
to Zionists of a Jewish homeland on the Palestinian coast in the south, in southwest uh, Greater Syria. So, did they make a did they make a, a military impact? Certainly, um, most military historians would argue that the movement of Faisal's army in the hinterland, right, enabled the British army to move along the coast. And uh, they came together at Damascus um, uh, on October 1st, 1918. Uh, they, but that the Arabs uh, were a small army. Uh, they were denied artillery and, uh, you know, sort of heavier military equipment that they asked for from the British. And so by design, the British had limited their impact, right? But the army grew in size. And this is, I think, an important thing for those who follow uh, the Arab revolt and uh, claims to territory after the war. At the beginning, because of the repression in Syria, a large portion of the army were Arabs and Bedouin from the south, right? But by, as it moved north, and particularly with the, the liberation of Jerusalem in uh, December of 1917, from the Ottomans, more and more Syrian Arabs joined that army and the Bedouin fell away. So one of the inaccuracies about the Lawrence of Arabia movie is to portray Faisal's army as simply men from the desert, not so. Um, And a couple of the important characters in my book uh, uh, were amongst those city Arabs who sneaked south and joined Faisal's army as it moved north. Uh, So um, the people, the Arabs who occupied Damascus in 1918 were uh, highly educated people. I mean, they were leading peasant troops and uh, Druze uh, were amongst their uh, allies, some tribal elements as well, but tribal elements from greater Syria. Okay. So, um, so did they make a, re- a military impact? They would say yes. Um, the British would concede, and Allenby himself would make the case at the General Allenby, General Allenby, uh, the leader of the um, Egyptian expeditionary forces, um, himself supported the claim that the Arabs made a significant contribution and therefore deserved the territory. The understanding was, as they approached Damascus, that. Any territory the Arabs liberated would indisputably be belong to their independent state. And so it's a, it became a race to get to Damascus. Who was going to claim Damascus, right? Um, and uh, to this day, there are disputes. Who got into Damascus first? Were there some leading forces of the Arabs or did a brigade from Australia uh, make it in first? Right. Okay. And... Um... Uh, um, speaking of the different allies and their designs or promises to uh, uh, different groups in the region, um, what was President Woodrow Wilson's vision for uh, uh, the world and especially for the Middle East after uh, the Great War? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, Wilson makes a uh, makes a, an important appearance in my book. I was surprised when I was doing research to find how well he how well known he was. You know, the press in Cairo um, since the United States came into the war in uh, 
in the spring of 1917 as allies of the British covered the United States and Woodrow Wilson heavily um, that year and the following year, reprinting translations of all of his speeches. And so when the war came to an end in November 1918, one of the principal characters in the book, he was a man born in what is today Lebanon, but considered himself Syrian in that greater Syrian sense. His name was Rashid Reddaf, published a magazine called The Lighthouse and uh, devoted his uh, December 1918 edition to praising President Woodrow Wilson. Why? Because Woodrow Wilson had promised in his speeches, and the issue reprinted some of those speeches, right, that all peoples of the world would have the right to self-determination to choose their own government, and that this was a war against colonialism and to set up a kind of democratic uh, post-war order. And so he fully embraced Woodrow Wilson, not only as a man of peace, not only as a man who recognized what we would call today human rights, but actually as an instrument of God, right? Rashid Rida was a holy man. Um, he was a religious scholar, a Muslim. And, uh, and yet as a Muslim, uh, praise Woodrow Wilson for serving what he considered to be their shared God's purposes for humankind, right? And that lo and behold, it was this country that had never had an interest in the Middle East before that was sent to liberate uh, the Arabs, not only from the Turks, but also from the British. He didn't like the British. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then, then after World War One, uh, uh, of course, there's a, the, the the coming together of the League of Nations, uh, where the Allies come together to try to um, uh, uh, make uh, sense out of you know uh, what to do with with the the. Uh, the world at that time, and to try to uh, prevent future conflicts. And there's a covenant of the League of Nations. And Article 22 of the covenant of the League of Nations um, related directly to the issue of the disposition of the land um, uh, in the Middle East after the war. What did uh, the Article 22 say? Oh, thank you for the question. Yes, Article 22 appears in the uh, Covenant, which was announced in February of 1919, near the beginning of the peace conference, right? Um, partly by inspiration of the Arabs who came to uh, Paris. Uh, Faisal was able to meet Wilson personally uh, in January. He was a very busy man, but um, he, uh, you know, one of his very close friends, uh, got Faisal introduced to uh, Wilson. And then um, when Faisal made his formal presentation at the conference, Wilson was extremely impressed with uh, the presentation and, uh, and so made sure in Article 22 uh, that it would promise provisional independence to the Arab territories of the former or defeated Ottoman Empire that had been occupied by the Allied armies. Uh, there were huge fights in January over what this would look like, and they settled on this label of something called a mandate um, that would not be a colony, and it, you know that territory would be under the guidance of a power that would sort of provide advisors and help the people in that territory liberated from um, the empire to organize their own government, right? 
um, that the advisory would be invited uh, by the local people. So Wilson made sure that the understanding in Article 22 was that mandates would be temporary and that the mandatory power, whether it be Britain, France, or another country, United States or others, would be there at the invitation of the people. There were other mandates um, awarded in other parts of the country, uh, world, um, in Africa, parts of the former German Empire, and in uh, the Pacific, uh, Pacific Islands that the Germans had uh, occupied. Uh, they, uh, these were given a different language than the Arab ones. You know, the Arabs had participated in a real government under the Ottomans, right? Uh, they had they had elections. They had served as ministers and governors of various provinces within the Ottoman Empire. Um, you know, they had not governed their own sovereign, sovereign state yet, so maybe they needed a little bit of advice. But as far as Faisal understood on that day when Article 22 was announced as part of the covenant of the League of Nations, they understood that essentially they had sovereignty and that they would have the power to choose who would advise them. Right. And so what did Faisal and those um, uh, around him uh, do uh, uh, in the spirit of the, the, the League of Nations covenant and the promises that they were given by uh, the allied powers? Mm. Well, they wanted to... Um, uh, they wanted to ensure that there would be a single mandate over all of greater Syria. They called that unity, right? They wanted to ensure that, of course, they got to choose. And they most of all did not want France. <laughs> they knew quite well, you know, the, there, there really was a kind of Arab diaspora at that time. They got a lot of information from Arab Americans who had settled in the United States, you know, there was a lot of telegraph and newspaper and periodicals and letters crossing the Atlantic. Um, there's a recent book by a friend of mine about um, Arabs in Latin America who participated in the negotiations after World War One, too. But they also knew Arabs who lived in North Africa and lived under the French. And those Arabs had said, do not trust the French. <laughs> they want to colonize you. They, they will not leave soon and they will not obey your wishes, right? So they, they organized against the French. I will say, though, there was one group that was very pro-French, and this is going to be part of our story. Historically, in Mount Lebanon, uh, the French had close ties with the Maronite Church, which is a, a kind of Catholic church allied with Rome. And Maronite Christians um, welcomed the French uh, after the war, and, and they because they felt that the French would be a bulwark against domination on the part of the Muslim local yeah. population. This was a you know, and and you know, here's where historians really like to slow down and say, hey, pay attention to the context and the moment in which all of this is happening. You know, we really push back against people who try to assert sort of longstanding essential truths about a culture, right? Here, the issue was very specifically, because Maronite Christians had gotten along with Muslims in Mount Lebanon. There had been, uh, there had been a civil war in 1860, but for 50, more than 50 years, there had been complete peace. They had elections to uh, a council, 
Um, and, uh, you know, they had arranged their electoral districts so that, no, you know, in order, if you were Muslim, you had to get votes of Christians in order to get in to, uh, to win and vice versa so that there were no extremists. It wasn't polarized and so on. That had worked quite well. But it was the war. Again, just as we talked about how the Turks and the Turkish leadership became paranoid after the Balkan Wars and with the Battle of Gallipoli. So um, there was a terrible famine during World War I in uh, particularly Mount Lebanon, but also um, in a large section of greater Syria. And the Ottoman state did very, seemed to do very little to help people. And the French... Uh, encouraged the belief that the uh, the Ottoman Turks had actually planned to starve them, and they could point to that Armenian genocide and say, "See, they went after Christians there. They're going to go after you." Now, his, since then, historians have problematized that, but this was a very effective war propaganda on the part of the French, right? Mm-hmm. You, the French told the Maronites, "You need us to protect you because all Muslims are liable to commit another genocide against you." And the poor Arabs like Faisal at Paris had to say, no, 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 those are, that was a military dictatorship that took power, you know, during the Balkan Wars and nobody liked them. And uh, we're not with them. We're Arabs and we live hundreds of miles away. And But, you know, it was very effective propaganda to paint um, all Muslims as of the same mind right, regardless of what language they spoke or where they lived. And that should sound quite familiar to listeners today, right? There, there is still that, that um, uh, propaganda available to those who want to push a certain kind of politics, right? Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, in 1918, uh, there's the establishment of the Kingdom of Syria, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what form did that take? Oh, very nice question. So Faisal... Uh, Arrives in Damascus uh, in the first week of, of uh, October 1918 with lots of cheers. And he um, issues a proclamation for a constitutional monarchy, uh, you know, in uh, greater Syria, in alliance with what would be they imagined an Arab state of Iraq and then an Arab state, uh, you know, in Arabia where his father was, right? Uh, he insisted that um, all residents of Syria, regardless of religion, would have equal rights. Um, right? This is, again, to look at the context and to know that people in Syria saw the victims of the Armenian genocide. They were refugees, right? Um, many of them uh, passed through Aleppo, the northern city of, of Syria, uh, on their way to refuge or death in the desert, right? Um, and so they, they understood that um, you could not establish a state after the war with the allies and Woodrow Wilson having claimed they fought the war for democracy against tyranny, right? That uh, you had to have uh, a state based on equal rights of all people. They also knew, of course, and this is pragmatic politics, right? I mean, you know, a politician in the United States doing the same situation would would, would uh, do the same thing. Um, it's not cynical, it's just politics, right? Uh, but uh, it was also important because these foreign powers were being told that all Muslims hate Christians and want to kill them, right? So, um, and the same for Jews, right? There was the rabbi of Damascus who uh, applauded and supported Faisal's proclamation alongside 
the Orthodox Christian patriarch, and a little less enthusiastic was the Catholic patriarch who was in contact with the Maronite Catholics over in Lebanon, right? So, um, so he, he set the ball rolling toward the establishment of a constitutional monarchy with that speech in late 1918. And then he returned in the summer of 1919 from the Paris Peace Conference to call elections for a Congress um, uh, that would write the constitution for that state. And, and how, um, uh, um, what was the composition of the, 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 the deputies to that, that Congress? Um, well, I had to do a little forensic work there. Um, you know, it's, it, it is a sad but true fact that the, you know, the winners uh, in history get to write history, and they also get to erase the history of the losers. So the French apparently confiscated and destroyed a lot of the records of that Congress, so we have to do a little bit of piecework. But I did so primarily by using a poster that showed pictures of the about 80 of the members. Uh, and I could, they had their names written underneath. So you could, you know, and with a little bit of research, you could figure out. They also had a town that they represented. Um, so anyway. Um, You're really lucky to have such a, a, a useful document as opposed yeah. to, say, a picture without names or without town references. Yes, yes. I mean, but to my surprise, nobody had really written that up. You know, again, thinking about the way victors tell, get to write the history, um, we have until now lived with a kind of colonial version of this history, but also the this kind of nationalist reaction to that colonial version, right? So the colonial version, if you look at the movie Lawrence of Arabia, is, oh, the Arabs, they were all Bedouin, illiterate. And they couldn't rule themselves. So the French and the British had to come in, split them up into different states, right? Syria, Lebanon, uh, Palestine at that time, and Transjordan, um, and rule them. So, you know, and the reaction of the Arabs who felt betrayed by that was to tell a different history that emphasized just simply that the, the Europeans stole their land but they didn't look at the kind of government or at this level, right? Nobody really wrote about the Congress. Uh, there's one book in Arabic that looks at the Congress, um, but doesn't really place it in the larger history at all. So anyway, all that, that's a long way of saying um, the Congress combined, if you look at, I look at the headgear of people, Right. Uh, because people wore different things on their heads, depending on what their profession and their class status was or whether they were from the city or the countryside and so on. And so you could see a, a real variety. There were a good number of men who wore tarbouche or fezes. Uh, they tended to be bureaucrats, lawyers, that sort of person, uh, professionals. Um, there were um, a large chunk who wore um like kofias, uh, the you know um, headdress of a tribal leader or rural leader. Some religious men were there, and you could tell the men of the Fatat group we talked about earlier, the uh, young Arabs, because they didn't wear a hat at all. They were considered themselves kind of modern, and they didn't want to wear the Ottoman fez, right? 
So um, they, I, I could also tell that uh, while most of them came from what is today Syria and Lebanon, uh, a good number came from what is today Jordan, Palestine, Israel, and a few from Turkey, uh, what is today sort of that borderland of Turkey around um, uh, Alexandretta or Skanderun. Um, and, uh, uh, but those were um, the ones from Lebanon, Palestine, and to a lesser degree, Transjordan, um, had to be indirectly elected, whereas the ones from the, you know, the core area of greater Syria actually held elections in June of 1919. Um, the British and French blocked the elections. This was a sign of things to come. And you know, this is the part of the story that really surprises my students. And if I had to pick a third reason why I wrote the book, is just that when I teach modern Middle Eastern history, my students are ine- inevitably really surprised to learn that there were constitutional revolutions and democratic governments that were set up. And then they're surprised as well to learn that the reason they fell apart or ended was in no small part due to outside powers willfully destroying them, right? So right. here, the, the, the blocking of the elections in the summer of 1919 to the Congress was a sort of sign of things to come, uh, the, the intent of the British and French to destroy this constitutional monarchy. Right. And, and we're going to get to, the, to some of, of that um, manipulation on the part of the, the, um, the colonial powers in a second. But I just want to finish up a little bit about the Constitution itself and just how progressive Ooh. it was um, uh, for the time. Um, and you mentioned about uh, minor- the status of minority groups uh, within Greater Syria that they were explicitly uh, uh, there were ex- explicit stipulations within this constitution that protected them. Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, they uh, they were actually given designated seats, uh, you know, by proportion in uh, actually larger proportion than they were in the con- uh, the population, uh, and uh, the constitution guaranteed absolutely equal rights regardless of religion. More importantly, uh, in a departure from uh, the Ottoman constitution from before the war, um, the constitution established no official religion. You know, and uh, reminded me, a friend of mine at uh, University of Texas, Austin, wrote a book on Thomas Jefferson's Quran, where she detailed his, uh, the, the debates in the United States in the 18th century about whether we should have a, an official religion or not. Right. And um, and one of the hypotheticals Jefferson used to argue for the separation of state and religion was, you know, there, you know, what about the Muslims who might live amongst us? You know, they should have equal rights, too. So here as well, um, the 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 argument amongst the congressional deputies was that if you have an official religion like Islam, then non-Muslims would not have equal rights. And that would actually violate. It's interesting to to hit to make the compromise and to get conservative Muslims who had grown up in the Ottoman Empire, where the Sultan was also a religious leader called the Caliph. Right? Um, in order to get them to come along, they had to say yes. But equality is a basic principle in Islam. So you know, this would still be an Islamic government in principle. 
even though it won't have the official religion of Islam, right? In practice, it will conform to some basic principles. But so they used have- they used reference to uh, Islamic uh, concepts of of justice itself in yes. order to justify the uh, uh, the establishment of a government that did not have yes. the formal designation of a Muslim government, exactly. Islamic government. Exactly. So they, you know, they were able thereby to persuade some people to, you know, the more conservative delegates in the Congress to uh, agree to a basically secular government. But then, you know, to get the last few on board, they did have to make a compromise. It's an interesting one. In Article One of the Constitution, you know, it says uh, Damascus is the capital, Arabic is the official language. And the religion of the king is Islam, not the state, right? Uh, And there's nothing in that constitution that refers to Islamic law as a basis of legislation or anything. But, you know, they were choosing Faisal as their first king. He was Muslim anyway, but it was, you know, considered um, safer, you know, that um, there would be people who would recognize, you know, who would attack their state as an infidel state if they did not include that clause, right? That, uh, uh, you know, that uh, they had always lived under the Ottoman Caliph and how can we have a state that doesn't have anything to do with Islam at all? So they kind of, in a symbolic way, tack that on there. And just as a footnote, down to today in the Syrian constitution, you know, the president has to be Muslim. <laughs> and, the, you know, the Constitution wow. underwent many different revisions over the 20th century. Um, and when when Syria did become a republic, which con- was considered too radical in 1920, right, um, they still maintain in Article 1, you know, actually, I think it shifts articles down the line, but um, to, you know, that the president has to be Muslim. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, so, but based on everything that uh, that you've been saying, uh, this seems like uh, such a positive outcome uh, for uh, for for the Middle East, for Syria. It's hard to imagine that things could go wrong. Uh, and uh, how did the French maneuver to gain uh, the the mandate over Syria and uh, essentially establish a colonial? Uh, uh, possession over uh, the territory? Oh, well, um, you know, it uh, took many pages in the book, and I'm sure I'm, I want to try the patience of our audience, but I'll simplify into a couple different measures that the French took. First and foremost, the book argues that the bad guys are not ultimately the French. <laughs> the bad guys really are the British. Okay, The British, <laughs> the British you know, had double-dealed, right? Um, <laughs> But then even when you look at the map that they agreed on, there was a map for the Sykes-Picot Accord, different from Balfour and the uh, Hussein-McMahon Agreement. Um, They wanted to change that to grab more territory. (laughs) And, you know, the, the prime minister of France was an old diehard anti-colonialist at the time. His name was George Clemenceau. Uh, who had fought against the, you know, establishing a French empire in North Africa um, since the late 19th century. So he's not a man who was interested in expanding French colonial claims in the Middle East. But the action of Prime Minister Lloyd George 
David Lloyd George, and his minions, who were all, you know, some of them were from the uh, old India office, Lord Curzon, for example, um, not only to grab Iraq, where there was oil to be had, right? But to grab, you know, I mean, southern Iraq, they wanted northern Iraq around Mosul, where there were supposedly to be, there were, right, more oil fields, right? Um, and they wanted to, of course, you know, as you may well know, um, one of the lobbies for creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine was to protect the route to India and all of that, right? So this excited what was called the colonial lobby in France. And in particular, one very smart, very active man, um, who uh, Robert de Quay was his name, uh, who took it, on, took it as his you know, primary mission in life to ensure that France would get control over Syria to counterbalance British control elsewhere in the Middle East after the war. So he outmaneuvered Clemenceau. Clemenceau was booted out of office in the beginning of 1920, and a kind of colonial party takes over the government, in in, in part due to his agitation. And um, from uh, from the moment that the Syrians declared independence in March of 1920, uh, maneuvered and convinced the new prime minister of France that not only should there be a mandate. French mandate in, in Syria, but that Faisal had to go. His government had to be destroyed. One of the things that we're really worried about is that these Arabs in Syria seem to be building a modern constitutional government and seemed able to do so. Their whole justification for colonizing North Africa was premised on the bogus uh, colonial lie, right, that Arabs can't rule themselves and they need to be taught how to do so, right? Um, and so if the Syrians gave the lie to that colonial claim and proved that Arabs were capable, uh, that would threaten France's rule in North Africa. And the French were quick to alert the British to the fact that their own claims uh, over Muslim lands uh, would be in peril too. And I think it actually would be important for our audience to understand that coming into World War I, 90 plus percent, 95% of the Muslim world, uh, you know, across Asia and into Africa and in the Middle East had been colonized. <laughs> like, you know, Sharif Hussein was one of the few independent leaders. You know, the Ottoman Empire was the last gasp of self-rule in the Islamic world, right? And so um, there was a lot of agitation amongst Muslims in India, for example, against the persistence of British rule there. Uh, and so um, it was, you know, it was easy to play on British fears. Let's just put it that way. Right. Right. Well, um we're coming towards the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, so I want to just uh, uh, see if you could touch on a few points. One thing, speaking of the British maneuvering, you talk in the book about how the term Sharifian was used by uh, what you describe as the, the French colonial lobby um, in order to uh, uh, really make sure that... Um, uh, 
that, to justify their own the the the, the French uh, mandate. What did Sharifian mean, and how how is it used exactly? Uh, yeah, it was kind of code word, <laughs> right? Uh, so. Sharifian meant that these forces, Faisal and his army and their whole movement, was really tied to Sharif Hussein down in Mecca, not really Syrian, so foreign, right? So they were interlopers and they had no right to rule. Uh, Second connotation was that it was an Islamic movement, right? And that regardless of what that constitution might look like, their ulterior motive was to build an Islamic state and to harm the Christians who lived in the region and the Jews, right? There was a, a good 15, 20% of the population uh, that was not Sunni Muslim, right? There were even Shiites, you know, in southern Lebanon, uh, not even talking about over in Iraq, right? Um, so, but by casting them then as Sharifian, they are tribal, they are Muslim. And they don't, they're not Syrian. That was their, their right, right. trick. And, and so ultimately, the, the um, colonial, colonial lobby with, with Rabbi Decay and then the um, uh, uh, General Henri um, Gerard, uh, a French general um, that was put in charge of Syria, ultimately ended up taking control of um, of the country and dividing it up into the the various uh, um, countries that we're familiar with today. Um, what was the 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 uh, short term and long term consequences of the French mandate of of Syria? Mm, thank you for asking that. That that occupies the last chapter and the epilogue of the book. So we managed to get there in our uh, time allotment. Uh, the First, the damage was done to the idea of constitutionalism, liberal constitutionalism, which I argue in the book was actually a very popular movement. There were people in the streets that supported that Congress, right? Um, but they were defeated. Part, uh, they had wagered that if we build a modern constitutional government, we'll be respected in the world. And they were not. That destroyed the careers of many people or forced other politicians to adopt a very different uh, attitude politically, right? Um, Playing into the hands of those who looked across the border to what happened in Turkey, where a very undemocratic general, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, uh, was able to organize a military defense of Anatolia and establish Turkey as an independent state. So maybe what we need is a military dictator not a democratic Congress to save our sovereignty, right? So it destroyed that idea and the popularity of that idea for, I think, decades to come. It also destroyed what we haven't talked about, but uh, I go into detail in the book on the willingness of conservative religious leaders, uh, Muslims, to work with more secular uh, politicians. And I think that division grew in the years after World War I and the fall of Damascus, uh, you know, as exhibited by the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. And um, I think persisted tragically down to the Arab Spring, where, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt 
and Islamic groups in Syria worked hard at the beginning to uh, coordinate a common battle against tyranny, a common um, goal to both sides. Not you know, um, those who claim that Islam prefers tyranny don't know much about the way Muslims have behaved politically um, in the past. Um, and, but they were suspicious of one another, and uh, those coalitions were fragile and easily broken apart in the Arab Spring. And that is one among other reasons that the Arab Spring failed. Another reason that the Arab Spring failed was the outside interference in those revolts. And uh, that harkens back again to that moment in 1920 when those who opposed democracy were able to call on the British and the French to come in and, uh, and smash the government at Damascus. Uh, and so in some ways, a century later, we saw a replay of history, or at least that we can say what happened in 1920 laid the deepest foundations for what is an enduring um, weakness in, politically of um, democratic forces in the region. Yes, well, this is a, a really fascinating and tragic story, and clearly there's so much more um, that that we could talk about, but we, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, but the last question I want to ask you is, if you could tell us something about a project you're working on now before we, we conclude. <laughs> well, I'm switching gears a little bit, but not really. Um, I wanted to tell the next chapter of the story, what happens to politics, and particularly to the relationship between those more secular liberals and um, the Muslim brothers who emerged by the 1930s. But to do so, I'm moving my work, cannot work in Syria anymore, as you might imagine. And it will be many years before uh, Syria is a place that uh, foreigners can do research and that Syria is a place that would be able to afford to restore its libraries and its um, archives. But anyway, so I'm going to move to Egypt. And the new twist is that I'm interested in the way um, precursor to social media uh, and a played a role in politics. And I'm, I'm, uh, the angle I'm taking is debates in and around movies. Egypt became the main um, the movie producer uh, in the Arab world by the, the 1930s and 1940s. So I'm going to have a lot of fun uh, with the Egyptian movie making and... Um, uh, and the pursuit and hopes for a democratic government after World War II. Wow. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Uh, that concludes our program. And uh, everyone, have a wonderful day.